0: So we are going to continue in our series titled, The Servant King. And will you open Mark with me? Chapter 11, we'll read verses 27 through 12, 12. And they came again to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? Jesus said to them, "'I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me.' And they discussed it with one another, saying, "'If we say from heaven,' he will say, "'Why then did you not believe him?' But but shall we say from man?' They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet." So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and they killed him. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and is it marvelous in our eyes? And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away.
1: Well, hey, um, the story I'm about to tell, it might be an allegory It may have actually happened, I'm not going to tell you, but a number of years ago, when we first moved to Madison, began to plant uh, the church, um, we were at a school meeting on Sunday mornings, that's where we met, not, not here, and we were done getting set up, everything, I was walking around the school, and I found some kids that were getting some things that they shouldn't have been getting into, and so calmly, politely said, hey, would you stop that? Well, the response I got back was, You're not my dad. You're not the boss of me. Now, if you've ever been in a situation like that, you have multiple choices of what to do next, right? Um, First, you can double down and say, Do you know who I am? Uh, Secondly, you can help them understand that although you're not their parent, you did in fact lease this space and go into all of the legal, you know, maloo. Or thirdly, you can just go get the parent, right? Which is what I did. You know, but that experience it, it illustrates something, something we all know. It's how do we relate to those in authority? And you know, for some of us, when we think about that, we may think of a boss or we may think of a parent, who maybe exercised their position of authority with great wisdom and compassion and kindness, and it was really under their authority that we actually learned to flourish. Even when it felt like they were against us, we somehow knew that they were for us. But I would imagine for many of us this morning, that may be a rare experience. When you think about authority, we tend to think of it in the opposite way. We tend to think of it, I just want to be free, to have someone that would be over me, above me. And, and sometimes that means that we've been in situations where it's been a boss or it's been a parent or someone in authority, and maybe they've neglected their duties and we've suffered. Or maybe they've acted in a way that's been self-preservation, and to save their own skin, we've gotten hurt. Or perhaps in very difficult situations, it's been a situation where there's been abuse. Whatever your experience this morning, as we continue our series in the Gospel According to Mark, this passage is about Jesus' authority. And the question for each one of us is, what are you going to do with it? How are we going to respond to it? So there's three things, three headings this morning. The first is the claim of Jesus' authority. The second is the folly of disputing Jesus' authority. And then the thirdly is the countermove of Jesus' authority. Let's pray. We'll get in. So, Father, this morning, what we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and what we are not make us, we pray this in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit, amen. Well, the the claim of Jesus' authority. So the passage opens, and the chief priests and the scribes and um, and the elders, which are the power brokers. These are the people who are calling the shots. It's the Sanhedrin of Jerusalem. They come up to Jesus, and in verse 28, this is what they say. They say this, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And the reason why They're asking this question is because Jesus had shown up just a few days earlier, and in the busiest feast of the year, the Passover, Jesus had come into the temple courts and started to overturn tables. We were in this passage last week. If you remember, Jesus is so upset. He is so angry because there is this empty, false spirituality. There is this, on the outside it looks good, but on the inside it is corrupt, And Jesus is so angry because this is the place where people are supposed to come and meet God. This is where the very presence of God is. And Jesus had said, this place makes me sick. You are exploiting others. And of course, those who were in charge of it were not very happy that Jesus did that. So that's why they're asking the question, Jesus... Who do you think you are? Who put you in charge, right? Well, look at how Jesus responds in verses 29 and 30. Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question, answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. You know, Jesus is so savvy. He turns the question they have and he asks another question back. And the question is, well, what do you think of John the Baptist? Is, was his ministry, was the things he said, was that actually from God? Or are these just ideas he made up? What do you think? Now here's why this is significant. If you go through the catalog of the Gospels and what John the Baptist said about Jesus, he said a lot and quite striking some things. In, in the Gospel of John... John the Baptist looks at Jesus. He says, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Luke's gospel, when Jesus is going to be baptized by John the Baptist, before he gets there, John the Baptist says, It is not even fit for me to untie his sandal, which by the way, that was like the lowliest of the lowliest things you could do to serve somebody as a servant. And John the Baptist saying, I can't even do that. I'm not, even, I'm not in the position to do that because of who Jesus is. And then, of course, John was there when he, was, when he baptized Jesus and he heard the voice from heaven say, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Do you you catch how much is happening there with what John the Baptist is saying about Jesus, and let me tell you what, to summarize the one thing Jesus means here, he, he's saying this, I am the one true king, and I have ultimate authority over you and everything here. That's the claim. That's what Jesus is saying here. And the religious leaders, of course, they don't want to answer the question have an answer. They know what they think about Jesus, but they don't want to answer the question. But that begs the question for, for us, does it not? What, what do we do with this claim? You know, years ago, um, <clears throat> I was talking with a neighbor about our kids and about faith, and I remember at one point, uh, he wasn't a Christian, but he made this statement. He said, it's important for each person to decide on their own what works for them in regards to belief? And I remember listening to this for a moment, and by the way, some of you this morning, what I just said, that represents where you are. You might say something like this: "I don't know what I think about Jesus' and his authority. I'm just trying to figure this out, but it's important to give people the freedom to find out what works for them. And don't get me wrong. I'll say this: It is important for people to decide what they believe. That's for certain. But I want you to notice something about that statement. If you say it's important for each person to sign their own what they believe, what works for them, notice what that suggests. That says the locus of the authority, the center of the authority, is on the self and on my experience. That's the ultimate authority. And do you see how that butts up against what Jesus is saying? Now, to go back to that statement, what works for you, I want to be clear, but there's a couple problems with that. The first is, you know, we live in a day and age where there is an incredible amount of moral outrage at the injustice in our society, in culture. There's incredible amounts of moral, moral outrage. But here's the problem. If you say it's about what, about me and my experience, then what you're saying is, my opinions and my feelings are what's true. They're no different than yours. So, for example, when 19 men get on, a, on planes on 9-11 and they fly them into buildings because they sincerely believe what they believe, who are we to say anything different? It's their experience. Now, I know that's a very huge moment, but it points out something that's problematic with, the, with locating authority in the self and our experience. The other thing is, when you begin to say, that's about what works for me, that actually says something ultimate about God. It's making a claim that either God is not there, or two, he doesn't care what you think or believe about him. So either way, Everybody's making an absolute claim. Everybody's saying something about authority. And Jesus in this passage is being very clear. I have no rival. I'm the king. Let me tell you what. If you understand what's happening there and you aren't feeling a little bit uncomfortable, then you aren't listening. Right? But secondly, in this passage, there's folly. Um, Jesus tells a parable. Look look at verse 1 of chapter 12. Jesus began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Jesus tells a story, and the story is this. There was someone who owned a vineyard, leased it out, he went away, and the rest of the account says later on, the owner sent servants to come and get some of the fruit from the vineyard. And each time they came, the tenants beat them or killed them. At the very end of the story, you, you might remember just a moment ago, the owner sends the son They'll respect him. And they kill him. You know, at the end of the parable, uh, it's clear at the end of the passage that the the religious leaders know that Jesus is telling telling the story about them, that they're the tenants, right? They know it. But it's not just them. This story actually tells something about ourselves. Two things. First, it tells us something about our identity. You know, when... Notice this way. In the story, the reason why it's foolish is because the tenants want to be the owners, right? That's what they want to do. They want to be the ones in charge. They want to be the ones who own this place. So that's why they beat them. That's why they kill them. That's why they want to kill the sons so they can be the heir. And one of the notable things about this passage is it relates to another passage in the book of Isaiah, chapter 5. And there, God speaks to Israel... And he says Israel you're like a vineyard I've planted you but I came to get fruit and I thought I was going to get really nice grapes and what I got was bad fruit. And the imagery in Isaiah 5 is talking about this moment this way he, God expected them his people to produce righteousness and justice. And it says in the passage instead there's bloodshed. In other words God says I'm planting a community that's supposed to be a community of justice and righteousness And instead, they're exploiting the weak. Instead, they're not treating people equally. And that's not how I've designed it. Now, listen, today, that might be hard for us to relate to. But let me put it this way. This is where it gets really practical. One pastor put it this way. It means when we act in such a way where we say the word mine, to anything in our life, we are disputing his authority. We're acting as owners rather than stewards. So think about it for a moment. When you say it's my money, or it's my time, or it's my body, you are suggesting that you're the owner. But don't you see in this parable, that's an illusion. Everything's his. You know, one of the things that happens when you live as if the things in your life are yours, what happens? Do you tend to neglect the needs of those around you? You tend to view justice and righteousness as optional. You see. Here's the, the flip side. If you view yourself as a steward, that he owns everything, then think about what that might produce. Think about this in our city group life, our small groups. How do you invest your time, your resources, and gifts to help others flourish physically, emotionally, and spiritually? Because that's the investment If you act like an owner, you might say, it's my time. It's my resources. But if you're steward, you look out at how God wants you to use it, and you go, wait, wait. Where are the holes? Where are the needs? How do I step in? Or think about this as a congregation. You know, a couple weeks ago, the elder team mentioned in our family meeting that we're going to be gathering on March 29th to just pray and think about how we might live out what we believe in this neighborhood, right? In one way or another, this is the question. If we are, as the people of God, stewards, it's just asking the question, what are the time, talents, and resources that God has given us? And how do we deploy those where he's placed us? Again, we're not owners, we're stewards. But think about this. When we flip that around, stewardship and we act like we're owners, this passage is saying we're disputing his authority. Or secondly, think about it this way. This passage shows the folly of building your life on anything outside of the authority of Jesus by showing that it's unstable you know one of the things in this passage at the end of chapter 11 at the end of chapter 12 is the leaders are fearful they're fearful of the people that's why they don't answer the question who is john the baptist because they don't they fear what the people will say that's why they leave jesus alone at the end of chapter 12 or at the end of the section because they fear what the people might do they can't do anything right there at that time to hurt jesus but they're threatened now why are they threatened they're threatened because Jesus is a threat to their power, to their authority. You see, they've built their life, their structure, their significance, their power on their position. You know, one of the things in verse 10, and we'll get there a little bit later, but it uses the image of a cornerstone. The cornerstone was that first block you would lay that would set the rest of the structure to be built on to have integrity. It had to be the right stone. And one of the things when you begin to see how the religious leaders are responding in this situation, is you begin to see that what they're building their life on is unstable. It can't last. And listen, we're we're not any different, you know. Um, Years ago, when the 2008 financial crisis hit, the chief financial officer of Freddie Mac hanged himself in his basement. The chief executive of Sheldon Goods shot himself behind the wheel of his red Jaguar. And here's why. Because the security and status of their their wealth, their cornerstone of their life, had been taken out. The structural integrity was now lost. And we of course say, well, that's them. But see, don't you understand, we're all in this boat. If you, we say this a lot, if you build your significance on your career, if that's your cornerstone, then what happens when that is threatened? Or if you build your identity on your family, if you say, if my kids turn out, if that's where I base it, right? What happens when they don't turn out all right? Or what about the pressure you put on them? Or how about when you build your life on beauty? Or relationships? Or a friendship? Can, can I submit to you that, that much of my anxiety, much of our anxiety, is because we recognize how unstable these things are. Seasons change, transitions happen. You see, they're afraid in this passage because they can lose it. And friends, this is what is so foolish, right, about disputing this authority is because we can do the very same thing. One of the things that's interesting about this parable is you see throughout the hostility of the tenant to the owner. You can't miss it, right? Every servant he sends, they beat or kill, and the son comes, they're going to kill. And friends, that's what Scripture actually says is actually the starting point of each one of us, that we're hostile. We don't like this authority. The Apostle Paul in Romans 8, 7 puts it this way, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot in other words, this morning, no one's heart is neutral. We're all at some spot. And you know, the very end is, is stark because in verse 9, it says, it says this, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's a, it's a warning to the leadership there. It's a warning that to live... In a way that disputes his authority is actually to end up in judgment. And that's offensive to us, but can I suggest to you something? If you read through this passage, you're like, why didn't this happen after like the first servant was beaten? <laughs> right? And there's multiple things, right? Actually, what you see here is the long-suffering patience of God until finally enough is enough, right? So I hope you see that this is, you know, in one way or another, we're all in this boat, right? We're, we're all living foolishly in some ways, right? We live as owners or stewards versus, excuse me, owners versus being stewards. We, we build our life on other things and we recognize how unstable it is. We're all there. So what, what do we do, right? That's the question. Well, there's a counter move. Um, this week I was looking up online, there's a, there's a Japanese martial art. I'm probably not going to say it right, so if, I, you know, if you're here and you actually practice that, please tell me how foolish I am afterwards, but it's Aikido. And basically, in essence, the whole point of this martial art is to use the momentum of your opponent against them. It's let them come after you, and then, as they come after you, you do a counter move that changes the whole course. And That's actually what we see here. Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus says, Have you not read the scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous in our eyes. You know, this is actually a quote from Psalm 118, and it describes the vindication of Israel's king, who's kind of tossed aside... And now is the cornerstone. Remember, this is the the foundational block. This is the one that sets the course for the rest of the building. So what is Jesus saying here? Well, in a few days, Jesus, in this passage, will be crucified. The, the, The folly of these leaders who dispute Jesus' authority will kill Jesus. But then it says this, that that's actually the very place where there's a cornerstone that's going to be laid for a brand new humanity. You see, on the cross, Jesus took all all the ways we dispute his authority. And he took it on himself. All the rebellion... And he took it, and he paid for it, that we might go there and build our lives. That's where this new humanity takes place, right there in him. It's trust, it's reliance on him. It's what you do with him. So what might this mean for you and me? If you're not a Christian this morning, or maybe you're, you've been away for a while and you're just coming back a little bit, I would just say a couple things. One is, if 1 Corinthians talks about Jesus being a stumbling block. That this cornerstone of this lake can oftentimes be something that actually causes you to stumble. And one of the things about that is the Greeks. The reason why Jesus was a stumbling block was because of they, they viewed Jesus as foolish. He's just silly. And one of the things about Madison is, when you think about Jesus dying for your sins so you can be forgiven and have a relationship with God, many people will just say that's just too simple. But friends, that's, that's the wisdom of God. Or the other side of it is in with the Jews. They looked at Jesus as being weak. In fact, in, in Romans, it talks about that they tried to obtain a righteousness by works. And they stumbled over Jesus. In other words, they tried to get right with God by their actions. And they missed the very one who has perfectly lived a life for them and died for them. In other words, you can't earn this. One of the great stumbling blocks is you can't can't do anything to receive this. You just have to receive it. It's a gift. But the question is, what will you do with Jesus? Jesus. Because he's the cornerstone. Anything else, there's no structural integrity. It won't last. But lastly, if you're a Christian, what will you and I do with Jesus' authority? You know, in verse 9, it makes this statement. It says, he will give the vineyard to others. He's going to take it away from them and give the vineyard to others. Do you know what that means? That means that Jesus is building his church. It means if you identify as a Christian, like this is actually the place where he's, he's given that to us. And that comes with a great responsibility. A great responsibility. To live as stewards, not owners. You know, I was thinking this last week, I was talking with a young couple... And one of the things that the husband mentioned, he just said this, we're having conversations about how we spend our time, our resources, and we're asking the question, how does this contribute to the kingdom of God? I was like, that's it. That nailed it. How do we leverage our lives for that? How, do, how are you making decisions about who you date, about how you spend your time, how you spend the money you have. If it's not yours, then do you know his heart? Do you know how he longs for you to deploy it? But secondly, think about identity. Do you understand in Christ, if you're in him, what you have is unshakable? Unshakable. There's a, there's a moment in Luke 12, 32 where Jesus says this, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And two things to note there. One is, Jesus says that God is now our Father. Do you know what that means? That means you're in the family. That means that's your identity. Like, if that's who you are, then that can mean anything from, hey, if I'm threatened at work with some person who's coming up who threatens my position, guess what? The thing I'm actually saying on can't be shaken because I'm I'm his. And notice too, this is one thing that Pastor Dave Bis- Bisgrove put is so helpful. But notice how it says, to give you the kingdom. Do you understand what that means? It means. You're a steward, but actually it's all yours. He's given it to you. Do you see how generous this king is? He's lost everything, given himself up for you, and now guess what? Everything he has is yours. See, if that gets worked into your life, let me tell you what, that changes stewardship, that changes your identity, and watch out because that changes a community of people who live that out. What are you going to do with Jesus' authority? Can I submit to you? Let us fall at his feet and let us offer all of who we are to him for he's worthy of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you That in your good pleasure you have given us the kingdom through giving us your son, but we don't. We know it, and yet we don't know it. Lord, help us in the in the very details of our lives to work this out. Now we give you thanks for your patience and your goodness. And we pray now that by your spirit, you'd help us to be a people who build our lives on you and deploy ourselves for others in your name. And we pray this in your son's name. Amen.